Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we just want to thank you and praise you for this blessed day that you have given us. May we rejoice and be glad in it. Lord, we know that as we delve deep into your word today, Lord, we ask for your help. We ask that your Holy Spirit helps us and guides us, that guides us in the truth of your word, Lord. We thank you for wise biblical scholars that have helped us unpack this passage, Lord. But Father, we pray for our members and particularly our youth, Lord. We pray that they will be able to come to an understanding of your word, Lord, that they come into a closer relationship to you, Lord. We pray that they may not lean on their own strength, Father, but that they lean on your strength, Father, on the strength of your Son, Jesus Christ, Lord. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, my Lord, my Rock, and my Redeemer. Amen. So one of my favorite films that I've seen is Facing the Giants. Now, this is a real feel-good movie. It is about triumph over adversity, right? It is a film about winning, succeeding, and victory. And if you are a person who likes to see an underdog, an underdog prevail over adversity, then this is definitely a film for you. Now, if you haven't seen it, let me just provide you with a brief synopsis of the film so that you can understand the context of it. So in 2003, Grant Taylor is the head football coach. Now, not soccer, but American football, right? And he is the football coach of the Shiloh Christian Academy Eagles. And in his six years as head coach, he has yet to make the playoffs. Now, in his seventh season, things don't go particularly well as he, we see him lose three games in a row. And we also see that one of his best star players leaves for another school. Also, the school is considering firing him. However, this is not the only problem that Grant faces. You know, at home, he has a leaking roof. He also has appliances that are breaking down. And his car is very unreliable and really an embarrassment to him. He also learns that his wife, Brooke, cannot become pregnant, and he is the reason for this. So suffering from all this uncertainty, he stays up all night studying the scriptures and praying. And finally, his old football coach inspires him to create a new coaching philosophy by praising God regardless of the results. And at the same time, he influences his players to give greater effort and tells them that they can win under God's guidance. Now, this improved attitude of players influences the rest of the school. And from then on, we see that the Eagles' remaining regular season games turn into triumph, and they make the playoffs. Now, I won't give away the rest of the story, much less the ending, in case you do want to watch the form. But it's very much a case of, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Philippines 4, verses 13, a verse that many of us are very well familiar with, a very well-known verse in the New Testament. But it is also one of the verses that is very much misused and misinterpreted. And many of us have seen variations of this verse, perhaps on, on, on cards or in notes, uh, in artwork, on T-shirts, Perhaps you've seen it scrawled on tattoos on people's bodies and even on famous 
athletes, sneakers or shoes to inspire them to victory and strength. And we know that Tim Tebow is one of these athletes, but so is Stephen Curry of the Golden State Warriors. On his Under Armour sneakers, you may have seen, I can do all things, a verse that pushes him to greatness every day. Because Curry says this, he says, it's a mantra that I live by and something that drives me every single day. It will hopefully inspire people to find something that drives them, whether that's a verse or some other motivating force that keeps you hungry and keeps you driven. Well, that's mine. And you can pick whatever yours is and let that drive you too as you continue with basketball or whatever field you are in in life. Notice, I can do all things. Kind of takes Christ out of the equation, doesn't it? But is that what Paul is really saying here in this verse? Is he telling us to believe in ourselves or to believe that Christ will give us strength to do whatever we set our minds to? So we... This morning, I'll continue our sermon series on misquoted, twisting the Bible out of context. And our aim here is to show through expository preaching the true meaning of the text so that we don't misinterpret it for our own means. As Pastor Gareth mentioned to us last week, that we aim to understand the context in which the text was written, right? In order to understand the context, When we study the words, the phrases, and the paragraphs, we need to study that before the verse and, of course, after the verse. We also need to understand who the author is and who the intended audience was at the time. And when we read through the lens of Christ, we can then apply this text to our lives today. So this morning, what I want to point you to is the secret of contentment which is the title of the message this morning. So please can you turn to your Bibles, and if you can stand, and we'll be reading from uh, Philippians, not the Philippines, Philippians, chapter 4, beginning at verse 10. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly, that now at length, You have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians uh, yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving, except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once again. Now that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit, I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, 
a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. You may be seated. So in order to unpack this uh, verse of ours this morning, we need to understand the context in which the verse was written. So the biblical scholars firmly believe that Paul was the author of the letter to the Philippians, and he addressed it to the believers in Philippi. However, there is a question mark of where it was written and when it was written. Now the traditional view is that this letter to the Philippians along with his other prison epistles, which is Ephesians, Colossians, and Philemon, was written during Paul's first imprisonment in Rome, approximately AD 60 to 62. However, in recent times, they believe Caesarea and uh, Ephesus has been proposed as alternative locations. Now, the reason why the biblical scholars believe firmly that it was written from Rome is because the details of his imprisonment correlates very closely to that of the book of Acts. For we read the terms palace guard in chapter 1, verses 13, and Caesar's household in chapter 4, verses 22, as reference of the emperor's bodyguards and servants that were stationed in Rome at the time. And we know that Paul was guarded by these soldiers. However, he was allowed visitors and he was free to preach the gospel of Christ. It also mentions a large church in the city from which Paul wrote, which seems to favor Rome. The church in the imperial city would have been much larger than any of the churches in Ephesus and Caesarea. So the theory that Paul wrote it from Ephesus and Caesarea doesn't really appear to be substantial as that of Rome. So as I mentioned, the letter appears to be addressed to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and the deacons, which we see in Philippians chapter 1, verses 1. Now, the Philippian church was the first church that Paul founded in Europe. He came to Philippi on his second missionary journey after being directed by the Holy Spirit. And we know this from our study in Acts chapter 16, 9 to 10. And the initial converts were Jews or Jewish proselytes. But the majority of the congregation was made up of the Gentiles. There was no synagogue in Philippi, which indicates that the small Jewish population was really tiny. And in Acts chapter 16, we read that there were two dramatic conversions at the time. The wealthy proselyte Lydia and, of course, the jailer. And this marks the beginning of the birth of the church in Philippi. Now, the Philippines had a deep love and affection for Paul. And although they were very poor at the time, they alone supported Paul in his ministry. Now, after many years, they had once again sent Paul a very generous gift in his time of need. And half a century later, the church would show the same generosity to Father Ignatius, who passed through their city on the way to martyrdom in Rome. But nevertheless, Paul wrote this letter to his beloved Philippian congregation to thank them for their generous gift. But he also wanted to update them about his current circumstances. 
And despite being in prison at the time, he exhorted them to stand firm amid much persecution. He wanted them to remain united and to remember the example that Christ had set them. They were to be the light in the dark world. He also warned them about false teachers at the time. And he also wanted to explain to them about why he was sending Epaphroditus back to them. So if we look now in chapter 4, we can see that Paul is beginning to wrap up his letter here. He's providing them with some final uh, exhortations as he expresses his gratitude for their love and for their generous gift that they had sent him. So the first point here, we see Paul is content in the providence of God, which we pick it up in verse number 10. So it had been a while since Paul had ministered in Philippi, in fact, more than 10 years. The Philippians had generously supported him when he left Philippi to minister to, to the Macedonian cities of Thessalonica and Berea, which we see in Acts chapter 17, 1 to 13. And when Paul moved further south into Achaia, they continued their support as he ministered in Athens and in Corinth which we pick up in Acts chapter 17 and 18. But verse 10 tells us that at the, as the time went on, they were consistently concerned for him, but that they lacked the opportunity to provide him with support. Now, we are not sure of why they lacked the opportunity because it's not stated in the text here. It may be that they themselves were suffering from poverty uh, or perhaps they were not aware of Paul's circumstances at the time, or maybe they just couldn't locate him. But now we see that Epaphroditus arrived in Rome, which we see in Philippians 4, verses 18. And he brought with him a very generous gift from the Philippines. From the Philippians. Paul was really happy as he rejoiced in the Lord greatly, not only about the gift that he received, but also about the love and the care that they showed towards him. And we can see that his joy overflowed now that after 10 years, they had renewed their concern for him. And if we look at the New King James Bible, it states, at last your care for me has flourished again, describing like a plant that is flowering again, for their love for him is blooming again. And his statement you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it, indicates that Paul was aware of their desire to continue to help him, but he realized that they did not have the opportunity to help. So he didn't blame them for taking so long to assist him, right? His gracious attitude reflects his confidence in God's providence. He was certain that God would arrange the circumstances to meet his need. You see, Paul never panicked. He never manipulated people. He never manipulated the situation. He was content because he was confident that the sovereign God was in control. Remember in Romans chapter 8, verse 28, Paul states, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Notice the strength of Paul's conviction in the statement, right? Paul doesn't say, well, I sure hope 
that everything will work out in the end, or I believe things will work out according to the will of God. No, he writes with assurance. He says, we know. So he writes with this apostolic assurance that as a believer, we can derive comfort from this verse. We also know that the word providence comes from two Latin words, pro, meaning before, and video, meaning to see. So it simply means that God sees to it beforehand. It is God working in advance who is arranging the circumstances and the situation in order to fulfill his purposes. Much like Joseph and his brothers, Joseph's brothers envied him and they sold him to a slaves when he was just 17 years old. But when he was taken to Egypt, God revealed to Joseph seven years of famine and seven years of plenty. And because Joseph was able to reveal these uh, dream, dreams or interpret these dreams to Pharaoh, he was elevated to a position of second ruler in Egypt. And after 20 years of being a part where his brothers were him and his brothers were reunited and reconciled after Jacob's death, they understood what the Lord had done. Because in Genesis chapter 15, 19 to 20, it says, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. And in our text here today, in the Philippians, we see that God, in His providence, caused the church in Philippi to become concerned because of Paul's needs. And he came at a time when he desperately needed the most. They had been concerned, but we see that they lacked the opportunity to help. And unfortunately, in this day and age, isn't it um, sad to see that Christians actually have opportunities to help, but they lack concern to do so. Where Warren Worsby comments about God's providence, and he says, Life is not a series of accidents, but a series of appointments. Understanding God's providence is essential in order to experience contentment. Now observe the second point. We see that Paul is content in the power of God, which we see in verses 11 to 13. It says, Now that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. So yeah, we see that Paul is very quick to let the Philippians know that he was not complaining, because in verse 11, he states that he has learned in whatever situation to be content, the secret of his contentment. His happiness was not dependent on his situation. His joy came from something much deeper. For the Greek word, yeah, content means to be self-sufficient or to be satisfied. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 8, we see that Paul writes, And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things 
at all times, you may abound in every good work. And it is the same Greek word here, having all sufficiency. But Paul states in whatever situation, right? So what situation is he actually referring to here? Well, he defines it in verse 12. So if you look in verse 12, he says, I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. So notice the contrasting words here. The words abased and abound. Now, abased and abound is used in the New King's James Version. He also uses the words need and abundance. He also uses the word hung hunger and plenty. So Paul knew how to get by with humble means, and he knew how to live with prosperity, right? In other words, he knew how to feel ashamed or humble, and he knew how to live in great quantity. Paul was referring here to the materialistic things, not to the spiritual things. So it was really his food, his clothing, his shelter, and his daily necessities that he's referring to here. Paul knew how to be content with plenty to eat, but he also knew how to go hungry. Paul had to learn this. He learned the spiritual maturity in order not to let his circumstance or his situation impact on his contentment. Much like us as believers, that we need to learn not to allow our circumstances to impact our contentment. John MacArthur tells us that Paul was no ivory tower theologian, that he had lived and that he had ministered in the trenches. His life was not exactly a testimonial for the prosperity gospel. And we know that because of our study in Acts in chapter 9, verses 15 to 16. Because we, hear, we read, But the Lord said to him, who was Ananias, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. And with our studies in Acts, we learned that in Acts chapter 9, after Saul's conversion, he began to preach in Damascus and Jerusalem. And there the Jews began to plot to kill him. But the disciples had to help him to escape, right? And at Lystra, on his first missionary journey, the hostile Jews came from Antioch and Iconium. They stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. And the Philippians also did not forget that Paul and Silas were imprisoned. They were beaten with rods, and they were struck with many blows. They were thrown into prison, and guarded securely in the inner prison with their feet, and fastened in the stocks. We also know that things did not improve in Thessalonica or Berea. In Athens, he was ridiculed and he was mocked by the Greek philosophers. And in Athens, the Jews also rose up against Paul in one accord, and brought him before the judgment seat. And after ministering three months in Greece, a plot to kill Paul was formed by the Jews as he was about to set sail for Syria. But when he got to Jerusalem, we see that he was again savagely beaten by the Jews from Asia Minor. And Paul was then rescued by a Roman officer, but then spent two years in Rome 
in custody while he was waiting trial. For he exercised his right as a Roman citizen to appeal to Caesar. But then we learn that on his sea voyage, he became shipwrecked. And finally, he arrived in Rome and he penned the letter to the Philippines. And Paul was again a prisoner in Rome. So how can Paul be so content? How can Paul be so joyful in such a situation? Well, in verse 13, he says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. So Paul yeah, expresses his strength from the Lord, that he had physical strength, not only spiritual strength, but physical strength in mind. Yeah, For the Greek word ischio, I can do means to be strong, to have power, or to have the resources. So we see that Paul had the strength to, with, to endure, including his difficulties, but also in his prosperity in this materialistic world. We see that uh, no matter how difficult the struggles were, Paul had this in, inner spiritual strength, the means of support. Now, where did this come from? Well, his sufficiency came from the sufficient Christ. It was the power of Christ that strengthened him and that gave him this contentment that he had. Because in Galatians chapter 2, verses 20, Paul writes, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Now, of course, we know that Paul didn't mean that he could survive forever without food, without shelter, without sleep, and other means, you know. But we know that when he reached his absolute limit, even to the point of death, that he was strengthened with the strength of Christ. He was able to, he was able to overcome the most difficult situation because of this inner spiritual strength that God gave him. For Paul abided in Christ, and Christ abided in Paul. Because remember in the Gospel of John, chapter 15, verses 1 to 5, Jesus says this. He says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it that bears much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. So how do people get this scripture so wrong? This Philippines 13 verses, uh, uh, sorry, 4 verses 13. For it is no, one of the best known verses in all scripture. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. And we know this verse is well loved. It is often quoted, but unfortunately it is frequently misunderstood and frequently misapplied. Many people shorten it, as I said in the beginning, I can do all things, which really takes Christ out of the equation. It is so self-centered. But what does this verse actually mean? 
Does it mean that we can do all things? No, because the New International Version states, I can do all this. And really, Paul was referring to his circumstances at the time. His difficulty, but also his prosperity. And this verse also doesn't promise that God will enable believers to do whatever they want, whenever they want to do it. It does not mean that God will bless whatever a person wants as well. For Pastor Mayer from the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary state that God is not some genie in a bottle waiting to help believers achieve their goal. He's not some cosmic vending machine ready to dispense a desired outcome. And this verse really fits into the context of which Paul is writing here. For what is he doing? He's thanking the Philippian church, right? For this generous gift that they gave him. For the love and the concern that they shared for him. This gift was sent through Epaphroditus. And as a result, we see that he's well supplied. So at the core of this teaching, we observe that contentment does not depend on our circumstances. Circumstances are always changing. And, but contentment can remain constant. And we see in this passage that Paul lists a whole range of human experiences, right? With regards to his material possessions, like his food, his clothing, and his resources. So we see that the spectrum has two opposing poles. We see bountiful surplus, but we also see extreme deficit, right? The amount of provision with Paul... Uh, is that he is content in Christ because Christ remains constant. This contentment can remain constant in any and every circumstance because of the secret that Paul had learned. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Now, circumstances do not determine our, con our contentment. Our contentment comes because Christ is with us in any and every circumstance we might face. And I like what Warren Worsby says. He likens the Apostle Paul to a thermostat, not a thermometer. Well, what does he mean by this? Well, he says a thermometer's job is to register temperature, right? It can either go up or it can go down. But it doesn't change anything around it. The surroundings changes it. But you see, a thermostat regulates the surroundings and changes them when they need to be changed, right? So thus, instead of having spiritual ups and downs, as his circumstances changed, we see that Paul remained constant. He remained steady in his work for serving Christ. He was not the victim of his circumstances, but he was a victor over his circumstances. So we see that Paul was content in the providence of God. Paul was content in the power of God. Now look at the final point. We see that Paul is content in the promises of God, which you see in verses 14 to 20. So Paul writes, Yet it was kind of you to share in my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once again. Now that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. 
I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. To God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Now, notice the word yet. Now, in the New International Version, the word nevertheless is used. Now, this marks a transition between verses 10 to 13 and verses 14 to 20. For what was written in verses 10 to 13 could have sent a wrong message to the church in Philippi. For if the letter ended with the verse in 13, I can do all things through him who strengthens me, they may have thought that Paul did not maybe need the gift, or perhaps he didn't really appreciate the gift that they sent him. However, Paul was uh, quick here to make certain that they, un that they did not misunderstand him. He wanted to reassure them that they have done well, that they shared with him in his affliction. So what does he do? He takes the readers back 10 years when he preached or first preached the gospel in Philippi. And after he left Athens and Corinth, we see that no other churches shared with him in the matter of giving and receiving. So notice the terms giving and receiving. They may refer to business-like accounts, right? The terms giving and receiving, a debit and a credit, or essentially like an investment. So we know that Paul was a faithful steward of the resources that God had given him. He kept an accurate record of all that he had received and all that he had spent. And at that time, it was only the Philippians who provided Paul for in order to meet his needs. And it was the generosity, along with Paul's hard work, that allowed him to minister in Thessalonica and in Corinth for free. So we notice the selfless attitude here by Paul and the church of Philippi. For we see that Paul gave of himself for the gospel of Christ, while the Philippians gave of their resources to provide for his needs. And what happened? We see that Paul had an abundance, right? He had an overflow. overflow. He had more than enough. But Paul wasn't so much interested in the gift that he received on his own behalf, right? He was grateful for the gift, but he was more grateful for the fruit that increased to their credit. Their giving increased in their account before God, right? The Philippians were storing up for themselves treasures in heaven. Their gifts that they gave to Paul were accruing eternal dividends. So we can see from this that those who unselfishly put their others' well-being before their own will find contentment, right? But those who live selfishly for themselves will never find contentment. They will only be content when their circumstances are exactly where they want it to be, right? But of course, we know that this is no way to live for the kingdom of God. And as we prayed and mentioned in the uh, notices that we'll be releasing the budget for 2023 soon. And you'll see that we want to use the excess money that God has blessed us with for his kingdom, for his glory. We want to increase the budget for the missionaries. We want to increase the budget for the benevolence ministry. 
And we're also planning to extend our internship program. And, we'll, and we want to plan for this in 2023. For we want to invest in God's kingdom. Because we believe that it will produce fruit. For the more we give, the more we will get, right? In return. Like the Philippian church, we want to accrue eternal dividends. We are content in the providence of God. We are content in the power of God. And we are content in the promises of God. Because in verse 19, Paul declares a promise to the Philippians. He says, And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. The great theologian Spurgeon said of this verse, he says to them, You have helped me, but my God shall supply you. You have helped me in one of my needs, my need of clothing and of food. I have other needs in which you could not help me, but my God shall supply all your need. You have helped me, some of you, out of your deep poverty, taken from your scanty store, but my God shall supply all your need out of his riches in glory. So you see that Paul knew that the, that the Philippians will not only receive spiritual blessings in heaven, but that through their generosity, God will supply their physical needs in life. For they had sacrificially given of their earthly possessions to support God's servant Paul. And in return, we see that God will supply their needs. Having sown bountifully, they will reap bountifully, which we see in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. And notice the phrase, out of his riches in glory. And Spurgeon again comments on this verse, and he says, with a great illustration of the wonderful miracle in 2 Kings chapter 4, verses 1 to 7, where Elisha told the widow to gather empty vessels, to set them out and pour forth the oil from one small vessel of oil that she had into the empty vessels. She filled, and she filled, and she filled, and miraculously filled until every empty vessel was full. So you see, our need is like these empty vessels. For God is the one who fills these empty vessels. According to his riches in glory, describes the style in which God fills these empty vessels. The oil keeps overflowing until every available vessel is filled. By Christ Jesus, describes of how God meets our needs. Our empty vessels are filled by Jesus in all his glory. So if we wrap this up and think about the application of how we can apply to our lives. As I said, I started off my message with the movie Facing the Giants. Now, don't get me wrong. God can bless us with victory. But I don't want people to be misinformed that this will happen all the time. And it will happen because of what you want or what you, what you need. As believers, if we are in the will of God and we are serving for the glory of God, then we will have our needs met. For Hudson Taylor said, when God's work is done in God's way, for God's glory, it will, lack, it will not lack for God's supply. So let me repeat that again. When God's work is done in God's way, for God's glory, it will not lack 
for God's supply. So please, brothers and sisters, let's not misinterpret this verse this morning. I can do all things. We need to remind ourselves of the context in which this verse was written. From the experience of Paul, we can see that he had in the various circumstances of his life, he came to the general conclusion that, well, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. He could bear any trial, right? He could perform any duty. He could subdue any tendency towards evil and endure any condition, whether it be in prosperity or whether it be in adversity. So his own experiences here, he expresses the firm confidence that nothing would be required of him which he would not be able to perform. He was, and this we can see is not a vain self-reliance, right? He knew fully well where the strength came from, right? So as, as, as brothers and sisters in Christ, we do not need to worry about what is to come, right? There may be trials, there may be tribulations, there may be poverty, there may be persecution, there may be want. But we do not need to fear or worry, for at every step of life we see that Christ is able to strengthen us, that He can bring us triumphantly through it, right? And what a privilege it is to be a Christian, to feel that in the trials of life we have one God who is Father of all, who is unchanging, and He is most mighty, that He can always help us. We can live our life with joy as we engage in our duties as Christians, and we can lean on His mighty strength. Let us not shrink from our duty. Let us not uh, dread the persecution. For in all circumstances, we see Christ is our unchanging friend. He can uphold us. May, may our hearts be fixed on Him. May our simple prayer for this year be directed towards Him as we encounter trials, as we encounter temptations on our doorstep, and when our duty presses hard on us, may we rely on His strength. And finally, I love the story of a young pastor who came to a church who had been accustomed to raising funds by means of suppers, bazaars, and things like this. But he told the officers that he could not agree to their program. He said, let us pray and ask God to meet every need. He even suggested that at the end of the month that they were to pay all the bills and to leave my salary for last. If there isn't enough money for my salary, then I am the one who suffers, not the church. But I don't think anyone is going to suffer, he says. Well, the officers were sure that he was going to die and the church was going to die as well. But of course, this was not the case. Each month, every bill was paid and at the end of the year, there was a surplus in the treasury for the first time in many, many years. So you see, contentment comes from adequate resources. It comes from knowing that the providence, sorry, it comes from the providence of God. We know contentment comes from the power of God. And of course, contentment comes from the promises of God. And Paul knew this well, for he wrote, I can do all things through him who gives me strength. So let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, Lord. We want to thank you for the truths that your word showed us today, Lord. And we pray that these words may not fall to the ground, Lord, that it may penetrate 
not only our minds and our hearts, Father. We pray that we may be of service to you, Lord. We pray that we may be content in your providence, that we may be content in your power, and that we may be content, Father God, in your uh, pr uh, promises, Lord. So, Father, we just thank you, Father, and may our praises and worship be acceptable in your sight, Lord. And we ask this all in your Son's precious name, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.